Okay. So I missed last week, but I did listen to it. It's in, a, it's in the podcast. If you guys ever miss any, actually, every sermons are in every sermon, and then every one of these is in there too. So I listened to Ed. He did a great job as usual. I will have to say that um, he told two darkness stories, and I actually remember them real time. Um, does anybody remember his two stories about darkness, physical darkness? What was one of them? Yes, yeah, Sue, I wish she was here. What is with that? Put your hoodie on backwards and then look around and be like, wow, it's dark out here. <laughs> yeah. So what was the other one? Does anybody remember? Yeah, so I was there. I was there too. And, and he's, he, was, he was pretty, pretty accurate with the whole thing, although I, I will say it this way. So, so we were trolling into the night, real quick version of it, because uh, Greg Castellane was there too. And, and we're 80 miles offshore. It's pitch black, and you can see some lights in the distance. You don't really know what they are, but they're really far away, and you just lose paying attention to them, but it's dark. And we were just pulling back into what's called the Baltimore Canyon, and we were going to set up there for the night. And all of a sudden, I noticed Eddie goes like this and starts looking up. So I, and he goes, whoa, and I look up and I go, whoa. And, and next thing you know, Greg Castlane almost hits the floor. We all look up. And what had happened was two of those lights had appeared. And I, for a split second, I'm almost thinking some huge Russian submarine has just surfaced right here. Because it looked like a black wall. Everything was perfectly miraged out. So there you go. Just to get you all involved in the beginning. So here we are. We're looking at 1 John, if you want to turn there. Um, and as Eric told us in week one, 1 John is written in what's called a symphonic style. And I just want to go over that again because uh, real quick. Because when even in this little section that I'm teaching on, it's almost cryptic and mysterious because he'll move around. That's what symphonic means is he'll move from one point and then he'll go into something else, but then he'll come back to that point and he keeps on adding to it. So if you read through the whole book, he's actually filling in pieces and more pieces are coming together. So if you read through it all in one sitting, that's really the best way to do it rather than just taking little pieces. Um, also in the setting, we have, um, as Ed talked about last week, we have some false teachers that likely went out from the church, so they were part of the local church, and then they started to espouse some sort of teaching and likely took a group with them, and as we're going to see here, if I refer back to it, I may, um, they're professing believers, but there's definitely some animosity, some ill feeling um, back toward, uh, commentators felt back toward the church itself and the individuals there. Um, and then one more thing I want to bring up about the book is this, is that this book is loaded with what I would call relational terms, terms that describe our relationship with God. So I just think it's good to keep that in mind because it's something that we're not too good at. See, when we fell, when mankind fell originally in the Garden of Eden, what he was doing, man was pulling away from God and separating himself. Okay, so, but man wasn't made to be like that. We were made to have an abiding, fellowshipping relationship with God. So when God saves us, he's restoring that. 
So this book is loaded with those type of terms, and sometimes we don't even see them. If you're like me, I can often get caught up in Christianity in this way, is that it's sort of like, uh, yeah, God, he's there, and yeah, I know I'm saved because I believe Jesus died for my sins, and i got to pray my prayers this morning and read my Bible and then go do the best I can. But you see, in that life that I just described, that's not the real abiding, fellowshipping life that I think that God wants us to see that we can have and work on. Not the pure one that we're going to have in the way future when all the obstacles are removed, but certainly a lot more than what we naturally want to have now. So it's loaded with those terms. Uh, Let me give you some examples. Abide in him, fellowship with him, live in him, know him. Okay, Uh, The word abide, as it's given... I went through and just counted them really quick. Um, Abide in God or God abiding in us 23 times in the book of 1 John. Uh, Fellowship, meaning fellowship, and this is just between us and the Father, us and the Son, and and He with us two times. He brings that up. Uh, The term in, you know, you are in Christ or you are in God five times. And then the term know ten times in the book. One commentator said this, he said, to live in him goes beyond merely imitating Christ in lifestyle or living as Jesus lived. That's what we can often think. Therefore, many translators prefer abide as a way of conveying the sense of permanence and duration of interior participation. I like the way you put that. We have an interior participation with God in our lives and connection with God. He says, to know God truly is to abide in Him deeply, and in each case, the outgrowth of such knowing and dwelling is joyful obedience. See, that's where obedience, it's not made to be, oh, i got to do this because the Bible says so. That's not the Christian life. We know that it is the absolute best, and in all obedience, we get a special communion with God. That's why we obey. That's what true love is, that you obey my commandments, and they're not burdensome. Okay, so this is just still the introduction. Don't worry, we're going to get rolling here. Um, But what has been helpful to me, and I'm still growing in this, and I'm brand new at all of this too, but Here's a little bit of homework. Like you may be thinking of something like that or just hear me go through there, and you're thinking, you know, I'm kind of stuck more in the mode that Steve was talking about beforehand, where it's kind of a cold-ish. You don't really know God. You're just trying your best and try harder, and when you mess up, you just try harder, you know? Um, so I'm just going to rattle off some things, not go deeply into any of them, but just a couple things to know and then some th- ways to look to improve that ongoing, daily, all-day relationship with God. Okay, this is one thing. Just know this. No activity in our day was meant to be a godless activity. Nothing. Eating, working, playing, reading, scrolling your phone, none of it. We can do it all with God. None of it was meant to be a godless activity. And then here's probably the biggest key. Ask him and then ask and keep asking. He's a good father. He knows that we are riddled with problems. Ask him. You do not have because you do not ask. Just keep asking, God, how do I grow? How do I know you more? 
How do I have your peace more? How do I have this fellowshipping? What is that? How? Keep asking him. He's a great father. He controls everything. He will guide you. All day conversation and inclusion. I'm just going to go through these quickly, but that's all day. Just keep talking to him. Prayers don't all have to be intense, fervent prayer on your knees. You could be driving down the road and say, wow, God, look at the way you made that sky. See, that's a, that's a quick conversation, but that is a connection you just made with God. Gatherings, I mean Christian gatherings, use them, go to them, small groups, serving, all of it. Be among brothers and sisters. Boy, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there, and they are sweet. Christian worship music, use it. Music is a gift to the human race. It reaches deep, deep inside of our hearts naturally use the worship music the word of god which is actually the source of everything i already just said use it over and over again expose yourself to it podcasts good podcasts preachers you're driving i'm telling you i have been more altered by listening to podcasts while i'm driving i'm not the same person i get in my truck i got somewhere to go and it takes me 15 minutes to get there i'm not the same person when i get out of my truck because i'm listening to a good preacher preach and then creation uh, God really opened my eyes to this one no matter where you are no matter what you're doing all creation is declaring the glory of God stop and let it speak to you look at it and ask him what is it in there what's it what do you want me to see in this tree this whether it's the grass whatever it is it's just a beautiful thing okay so I just wanted to throw those out there let's get into the text first John we're gonna be in chapter 2 Verses 7 to 11, we're going to read right through this quickly, and then I'm going to go through it more slowly and add some things, then we'll dive into a couple things deeply. Okay. He says this, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have had, which you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We need help. First, we thank you because you have opened our eyes here to see you and know you, and we ask that you continue to do that with even new revelation and new sight of you tonight. Please make your word effectual, that we would be changed, love you more, love each other more. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me get into my own darkness story because it's good. To, it's good. So what we're going to do is um, we look at what physical darkness, and that helps us understand what uh, John's referring to as spiritual darkness. He's not referring to physical darkness, but they, they're going to help out. So I remember when I was a kid, 10, 11 years old, and I don't know, I think this is genetically inside of you, but I, I loved to hunt, you know. So my dad used to take... Um, my older brother and I, and we'd go duck hunting. I don't know if you guys know down here uh, by the power plant, Tucko Inn. 
Um, but I remember we would put our boat in, and if you're going duck hunting, you've got to get out there. But, you know, you're allowed to start shooting a half hour before the sun comes up, so you've got to get out there super early, get everything ready, and do that. So often we're in this little boat, two, two kids, 10, 11 years old, and then my dad, and we're going up through the bay, and as soon as you would pass by the plant, it just got black. You just couldn't see things on, on you know, a lot of the nights. So I remember that we used to sit in the front, and he would tell us, just look and let me know if you see something and call it out. Like all of a sudden there'd be a channel marker. She'd be like, right there, right there. So we wouldn't run into it, you know. And on more than one occasion, we'd be cruising along and we're staring and you're staring into the dark, trying to see, trying to see, trying to see. And then boom, we would just hit. We just, I just remember running right up on the land, you know. In, and then we're all looking around going, whoops, you know. So see, what was happening was the darkness was veiling, and it was blurring, and it was distorting our reality. We couldn't see properly, and therefore we ran into things, you see? So, and then we'd have to push the boat off and keep going. All right, so let's hold on to that story, and now let's get back. Let's go through the text. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the text a little bit slower now, and I'm going to just hit some things and explain what they are, just quick commentary, and then we're going to go deeper into some of the areas that I think can really press into our lives and into our hearts, okay? So First John, let's just, I'm going to read back through it, and you can follow along if you want, but I'll be stopping uh, through the text to help explain. First, this term John says to the, um, the Christians, and this letter would have been circulated throughout the, the Christendom back then, but um, so he says beloved. When John uses that term beloved, he cannot pick a term that has a higher degree of love and affection for the people he's writing to. Some of the, some of the commentators were dead set against the fact that some of them, uh, some of your um, uh, variations of it may say, my good friends. And they just say that is, it cannot be correct. He is referring to them as the deepest loved family. So that's why he uses the term beloved. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So likely this, we're gonna talk about this more so I don't wanna to put too much into it, but see how this is cryptic? It's old and it's new, but it's really not old, it's new. Um, so what he's saying is the commandment he's talking about is the basic commandment of love God and love your neighbor. It's the commandment of love, okay? So we see it. All the way back in the Old Testament, we'll hit that, and it transfers through. And the reason he's calling it new is the arrival of Jesus, God, coming to the earth, is brand new in its, in its clarity. It's not changing the command at all, but he gives it clarity. Now God is among us. We can see what perfect love is. We can hear what perfect love is because it's in him. Okay? Let's keep going. Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Again, the in him is Jesus, that he's saying this commandment was true in Jesus. Love and light abided in him. He was the light, okay? But now it's also in you. Remember, when you became a Christian, you just didn't start to ascend to some sort of... Uh, facts that are outside of you and they're just ethereal facts. No, what happened was you were dead, dead to God in your sin, and he said, as John Piper puts it, wake up, 
and you woke up from the dead. See, but his spirit is put inside of you, causing that wake up. And then that's why that whole thing is in you now as well. That's what he means there. Then he says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Here he means this darkness that's passing away is the old only you nature, the selfish nature that you had. That's the darkness that's passing away. And the true light is already shining. In other words, he is in you, the true light is in you, and it is working in you, and it is shining, and it will not be stopped. Verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. We'll talk extensively about that. I just want to say, if I don't say it again, his brother, this is, he's talking about Christians. Here, I mean, we could extend outside to non-believers, but he's talking about believers only when he's talking about brothers here. Whoever loves his Christian brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. That phrase, in him, there is no cause for stumbling, he simply means that in the Christian now, a Christian who is having the love and the light of God working in their heart, when that is in operation, he cannot fail. There's no cause for stumbling. Even he can't cause those around him to stumble. Contrast that with the darkness working in you. You will stumble and you will cause others to stumble. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Oh, I already did that one, sorry. Uh, Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness. Now, Ed did cover this. Let me just cover it again. Whenever you see the word walks, that, that what he's trying to communicate there is that it's an ongoing pattern of your day. Just like you would walk down a path, you just one step at a time, you see, and he's talking about hate. You just hate is working in your heart as you go through your day. Wherever you look, hate's there. Whatever you're doing, the little things, it's a pattern of your life. Uh, Second part of verse 11. Do not, um, I'm sorry. So whoever hates his brother, let me start in the beginning. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And basically all non-believers here, they can't see. That's why we have compassion, really. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't hate on non-believers. What the heck's the matter with you? you know? We know what's the matter with them. We need to get near them so that we can share with them, not judge them and push them away. Okay. Here we go, deeper into this now. The old commandment, new commandment, a little bit cryptic and mysterious, but we're just going to unfold it. Let's see where they come from. The old commandment, coming from Deuteronomy 30, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Where's Eric? I hate to, I hate to come in on this subject here, Eric, because, I mean, it was covered forever this Sunday. You definitely, definitely had it covered. Actually, I really appreciated when Eric started, and then he, he did explain it so well um, that, that this is, notice God is circumcising your heart. He's cutting away that old selfish nature. He is cutting it away. And that's actually what happens to us too. We don't do it ourselves. And he, he goes on in Deuteronomy 30, he says, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. 
Leviticus, following it up. So let me just frame this up here real quick. This is what we're looking at. I don't know if you guys have seen this before. But in the universe, God made a governing principle for all human beings, and it's because it's what governs he and the Trinity, and that is love. So we see it usually in the scriptures in love God and love your neighbor, and we'll, we'll, we'll see it closely. And let me, let me set up even more. So that those two great commands, they're the, the great commands, every other little command fits inside of them. Any example, do not steal. That's also, if you don't steal from someone, you loved your neighbor, you didn't steal from them. You see, what, um, if it says, do not lie, well, then you didn't misrepresent the truth and have someone hear a lie, that's not loving. See, so all commands fit under those two big umbrella commands. It's good to see that. That's why when someone says, oh, love God, and you go, I do. Well, that's not that simple. <laughs> You know, it's not talking about just a, a mild affection toward God. It's talking about every part of life being, being God-oriented. Okay, then in Leviticus 19, he says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. There's the love your neighbor as yourself. So we have the two commands. Here's, the, here's where the word new command comes in. John 13, Jesus said, I give you a new command... Love one another, and here's where he clarifies, just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, love, if you have love for one another. That's how you tell who is a Christian. We don't look like everybody else. There's something really, really strange about Christians. Do you know what it is? It's not that they go to church or carry a Bible. They love. They serve. They don't consider themselves first. They consider others first. Oh, in keeping, actually John's going to really straighten this out right here. In keeping with the symphonic style, in chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, he actually reveals. He's real cryptic here on what the commands are. He doesn't really say it flat out, but here he does. He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. See, so he sneaks in the phrase, believe in his son, Jesus Christ, because that's how you love God. You know, he also says somewhere, whoever doesn't believe, you're calling God a liar because his testimony has been that his son, I've come into the world. So that he sneaks that in there, and then he includes, and love one another. And here's where John Piper kind of summarizes this. He says, the gospel contains not only the commandment to trust Jesus, but also the commandment in the power of that trust to be changed into a loving person. You know, you can't, we can't as Christians think, I believe Jesus died for my sins, and I prayed a prayer, and I did all those things, and now I'm good to go. How else do we live life the way everybody else? If we are truly communing and fellowshipping, abiding in God, we will reflect him, and that is sacrificial love. That's what it is. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit more time and just uh, even expand this um, love umbrella a little bit more. So what is love, where did it come from, and what is its purpose? Basic definition, 
Love is a life-enhancing action, small or big, and everything in between. That's what love is. It enhances life for others. It's not primarily an emotional disposition, as you commonly hear called in our culture. But it's really nice when the emotional disposition fits the action, too. But it does not have to be present. Okay. Love God, love your neighbor, that cosmic law of love over all, act, all human activity. So they asked Jesus, teacher, this is a lawyer, Pharisee, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see how he lumps everything in there? Everything said in the Old Testament. All the to-dos, all this, that's all under one big umbrella of love. Paul follows this up, uh, Romans 13. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's that law of love. 1 Corinthians, more expansion, 13. Just a description of what it looks like. You know, God doesn't leave us out there. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Now, that's something our culture, we don't get. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You know, new heaven and new earth cast forward. Love transcends even into that whole thing. That will govern the universe and the heavens as we know. It will never go away. It is the essence of God. It can't go away. It's what makes everything great. A little more explanation, the law of love. The law of love is built into the fabric of the universe. God instituted it to bring beauty and order and everything good to human relationships. As the pinnacle of creation, humans are made in the image of God and therefore made to live beautifully with an other's first focus and obey the law of love. When the law of love is continually broken, it brings frustration, discord, disorder, strife, and tragedy to all of life. So which one pretty much describes the planet as you know it? The second, right? Because the law of love is continually being broken. From way back in the garden, when the first big breach happened, and man said, no, God, we will not have your rule. We will rule ourselves. We can do this. And man turns inward, and he loves no longer, and he thinks about himself. He's selfish. We're selfish. Do you guys ever notice that in yourself? Nah, not at all. Yeah. 
It's sort of like, here's, here's, here's another example of, of, you know, God gives us lots of laws, right? So you have laws of physics, you have the law of gravity, you have actually the law of love, but then you also have, let's just say, the laws of mathematics. So two plus two equals four, right? Now that's like a mathematical law. Two plus two equals four. If, for example, that people just decided that two plus two can equal whatever you want, six, and this guy says six, and that guy says nine, and two plus, all of a sudden, do you see the disruption that would happen in all of banking systems, in all measurements, in all everything? As soon as you take a law of God and twist it and start to break it, it causes chaos and havoc, and things are not as they should be. There is no beauty in that system. That's what happens when we break the laws of God. It's the same as breaking that law. Here's what one commentator said about love in, in modern America, the way we currently understand it. In modern Western civilization, our basic belief is called individual realism. In such an outlook, I am the center of my life, not other people. Love for others becomes a secondary concern. Self-love is primary. This is also the exact essence of the fall of man, when we turned inward and became primarily selfish. Okay, verse 11. Let's talk about darkness. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. So we talked about physical darkness and that trip down through with a boat and it, how it just obscures reality and you just can't see things for what they are. Um, also picture this because this might be a little clearer for you. If you were... Uh, on a camping trip, and there was a path in the woods, and now it's nighttime, and you headed down that path in the woods, and it was, and you didn't bring a flashlight. So you would, wouldn't take you long before the branches that are sticking out, you know, smacking you in the face, and then you, your hands would probably be out in front of you, and then you trip over a log. You can see what it does. The darkness is taking that branch and those logs and whatever it is, and it's covering them. It's veiling them. Okay, so, so, and that's reality, but the darkness is obscuring all that. It's messing it up, and that's what physical darkness does. Darkness suppresses the truth. It disorients us and lies to us. Now, spiritual darkness is very similar in the spiritual realm. One commentator put it this way. Spiritual darkness is the shutting out of God turning God off in your thoughts and actions and heart. You see, we all were given spiritual darkness at the fall. We don't see God, right? I mean, how many people are walking around? Now, Christians have had the, the blinders lifted somewhat, but how many people just go headlong perfect in their life and God is everywhere? God is actually giving them life and breath and everything, and they got no regard for it. God is sustaining every physical thing you can see and create a man in his image. He just walks through those things going, huh, what God? What God? I don't see him. See, the blinders have been put on the spiritual uh, heart there. Okay, so in spiritual darkness, you cannot see accurately true spiritual reality. Therefore, we endlessly pursue mirages and do things that do not produce our desired results. We, we, seek second, we take secondary blessings and turn them into primary worship. 
We look for security in our financial holdings. And I ask you a question. You know, this is America where it's a real big virtue to keep piling on money. You know, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's a virtue. But if that money is really bringing security, uh, security from what? A lot of money doesn't hold back sin. A lot of money doesn't hold back illness and disease and death. You see what I'm saying? It's just a mirage. It may keep you fed in a roof over your head and you running around, but it's really not secure at all. It's a mirage. But see, that's what we go, go, go. Get the money. Get the security. And then rest in that. Never meant to be that way. We look for fulfillment and completion in a spouse. You know, there's a secondary blessing. God made marriage. God made a man and a woman to be one together. But it's secondary. Our primary oneness is with God first, and then we can actually love our spouse. Other than that, we're always in a consumer relationship with them. We look for belonging and acceptance in family and sports teams and hobbies. Achievement. Just keep achieving. But the belonging and the acceptance, it can't get any greater than with God. If God says you're his, then you belong. If he says he loves you, he's here. He's with you. These are all fake. We look for significance in a career and sports accomplishments. Oh, and in, a, in the U.S., our looks and our appearance. Now we're going to be significant. If you can be, and the girls, whatever, I don't want to get into this too much, but yeah. But you get it. I mean, look, look how much we do it. You know, and, and as I go down this list, you think about the American person without God in their life, and these things dominate, and yet they leave them restless. They do not really satisfy. Only he can satisfy. We look for abundant life in comforts and pleasures, vacations and fun adventures. And we just keep stacking these things up until the grave. It is appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. Think how many people are shocked at that. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they go into death. I just don't know how they do it. Go into death with not really knowing and not asking What's going to happen to me? I just read in Ecclesiastes where God put it in the heart of man, eternal matters. He knows he's going to live. Man, we're great at blocking things out. Without God being the relational center of our lives, we are lost and in darkness. Okay, let's talk about hate in that verse 2, 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. Biblical hate does not necessarily mean a very intense dislike, like we would think about it. We use the word, you know, wishing even that someone were dead. Biblical hate is just withholding love and being indifferent to someone is enough to be considered hate. Take the Good Samaritan. Those guys that passed by the Good Samaritan, they didn't go over and kick him when he was down and, and, and finish him off if they did, if they hated him. No, they pass him by. Don't have time for that. That's hate in the Bible. Jesus said this, Luke 6, blessed are you when men hate you. Watch what he follows it with. When they exclude you, just ex being exclusionary. 
That's hate in the Bible. And insult you and reject your name. That doesn't sound like vicious hate the way we understand the word. You have to realize when God lays this out, we are either in the command of love and abiding in love and abiding in God in our spirits, or we're not. Paul says this, Owe no man except the debt of love. See, we actually owe a positive action to man. Oh, 1 John 3. Remember I told you he clarifies some things? Whoever does not love abides in death. That was pretty clear. John doesn't really pull many punches. He, do, he doesn't, not in this book. He just lays them right out there. Here's what we do, though. Here's this one from Proverbs 26. This is what, the, this is what I'm going to tell you is not the solution, but what most, we try this and what most people do. Proverbs 26. We try to hide it. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. Whenever he speaks graciously, believe him not. You see, we're good at that, and that's, that's not how we're going to clean this up. That is not the solution. Be like, oh, I got to stop hating. Oh, how you doing? Oh, so good to see you. And really, you're just like, I don't even care if you're breathing in 10 minutes. You know? That is not how we're going to clean this up. You have not cleaned up your heart. That's the substitutionary, I'm going to try harder and I'm going to make myself look good. It does not work and it is not biblical. So let's do a little test yourself here. Is there darkness or biblical hate in your life and in your heart? Consider all the areas of your Christian on Christian interaction. Sunday morning church, small group, Christians at work, Christians from other churches, Christians you serve with, Christians who left our church, and professing Christian relatives. Just think about those, all those groups. Think about them right now. Is there anybody there who you would just rather not see? And if you're thinking about going to that place, you're like, oh. Just think about it, because that's probably indicating not love in your heart. But the Bible's going to show us how to clear this up. And when God was showing me and still showing me the hate in my heart, which is just dislike, it was shocking how much of it was there, and that I still wrestle with, but this, was, this is working. It's beautiful. Let's keep going, though. Is there someone you don't like? Maybe they have even hurt you. See, this gets into the category of forgiveness. They've literally hurt you, either just in blowing you off or said something, did something. They hurt you. Consider those conversations where a Christian or a church affiliation from your past comes up. I'm still giving you examples of where you might see this come up in your heart. And all you have in your mind is their faults and sins. This happens to me a lot. Someone will mention a church or somebody that I knew, because I've been a Christian for 35 years, and what comes, what's the first thing that comes into my mind? It's like this. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you what about that guy. That's the first thing that comes into my mind. That just goes to show you there it was. I'm not thinking about his benefit. This is a brother in Christ. And I, all I have is, oh, that church? Oh, yeah, that church, oh, yeah. That's not it, guys. That's not it. 
Here's the solution. Jesus covers this so well. Love your enemies. That's what somebody is. They're a minor enemy to you. They're not an arch enemy. They're just, it's just minor. Remember what he said back in Leviticus? Bearing a grudge against somebody? We actually look at that now. Uh, I see it in sports all the time, even at the high school level and things like that. These, they have this ill feeling toward these other schools. What is that? And then they start hating on those individuals right on the field. I'm like, whoa, what is going down here? Jesus' solution, love, those, love your enemies. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Here's the solution. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Now you're turning it around. You're not going with what is coming to your mind. You're turning it into love. And maybe I'm standing there and someone brings up someone from the past, and I say, yeah, I remember when he served in brigade instead of going, oh, man, did you hear about that guy? You see the difference? I'm putting a blessing on that person and not what I remember about their past. Now, this has been the number one thing in transforming this in my own heart. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray for your enemies, he says in another place. Pray for your enemies. And it's like, that has worked great. God, show me something in my heart, and I'm just like, okay, there they are, there it is, and I just start praying for them. I'll say, God, make their ministry, make their family beautiful, um, have their food taste good. Uh, God, any blessing, give him grace and wisdom at work. You start praying for someone, and it's, 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 it's like God says, now you're getting it. You're for them. Now you're getting it. And it works. Oh, I got to, yeah, this is so important. Jesus finishes this section up this way. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? That's a rhetorical question. And that's what we all do. We want to circle around ourselves with what we call my people. People that see things my way, people I'm comfortable with and everything like that. He says a rhetorical, what benefit is that to you? It's no benefit to you, Christian. You haven't begun to love if you're just getting around the people and excluding the people that rub you the wrong way. For even sinners love those who love them. That's the whole point. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do that. See, we haven't even become a Christian in our activity with this yet. Here's what one commentator said. This guy's pretty good. He says, To hate a brother or sister in the church means one is in darkness and has been blinded. To love them means that one is living in the light. Love becomes genuine value only when it is tested, only when we must reach beyond ourselves and love someone we don't wish to love. That is love. That's what God did to you. You were not lovable. Nothing in you was lovable. You hated your God, but he loved you. That's love. Not for people that are going to scratch your back. He finishes this and says, 
only when we must reach beyond ourselves and love someone we do not wish to love. And then he says, this is the caliber of love John has in mind. C.S. Lewis finishes up this way because this is what's going to happen in your daily practice. C.S. Lewis, when you have gone through the pain and exercise of forgiving a brother on Monday, you may well find that you will have to do it all over again on Wednesday. It's a battle, guys. It's a continuous battle, but it is worth the fight because it's actually impossible. You can't do this by gritting your teeth and saying, I'm going to love. You need the Spirit. You need the relationship with God. You need the abiding. You need to call on Him and say, I can't do this. That's the best place you could ever live. I can't do this. Then He, all of a sudden it's happening. Then you realize now the Christian life is taking its way. Okay, pretty close. 10, light, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In physical light, we see true physical reality as it really is. We can clearly identify colors, shapes, objects, textures as they really are. The more light, the clearer and clearer we can truly perceive. That's what light does. Did you ever notice? It's like even, uh, you know, when we used to go hunting, you know, heading up in the boat in the dark, sometimes we would literally lose our way so much. You get in the mouth of Tucko River and start turning all over the place. <laughs> My poor dad. And we're just running into the meadows. And we, 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 would, we would be like, look, we don't even know where we are, so how do you know what direction you're going to go in? So we would have to sit and wait until the sun started to dawn, and now we could go, ah, look, there it is, right? But see, that was just a little bit of light. So then we could go, oh, I got it, I, I, like that way first, then this way. Well, on the way home with the noon light, now you can see all the texture, all the color of the meadows. Everything is so easily seen and at a long way off. You see what light does? It, it continually is working. And, and that's one of the points where he says in the beginning, um, one of the commentators was almost turned into preaching this whole thing. He said, he's, he kept saying, um, the darkness is passing away and the light is shining. That means in you, there is this walk. The darkness is passing away. I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. I have more light in me. I have more Jesus in me. And life is better. You see, it's just meant to be an encouraging thing. Because if not, just think if you, had, if you knew you had to stay in your present condition and just you were going to live out your life. I mean, to me, that's the saddest when a, when a believer gets uh, you know, stuck like that. Uh, with spiritual light, we see spiritual, which is invisible reality. That, that's what spiritual things are. They're invisible. That's why they don't make any sense to people. We see and perceive God who is in and behind everything. In spiritual light, we can pursue real things and go in the right directions that produce lasting happiness, fulfillment, joy, belonging, peace, significant, and abundant life. All the things we really want. Paul said it this way, Behold, all things have become new. We see all of our relationships, interactions, politics, education, the past, the future, God, Jesus, work, nature, marriage, TV, movies, hobbies, all differently because now we see in true reality. Here's a little summary of this spiritual reality. It is the reality that God exists and that he made everything and that he now sustains and overrules every system and life form in the universe 
and pertaining to mankind, he gives all men life and breath and everything, and that in him we live and move and have our being. He is the continual source of all time, all space, and all matter, whether invisible or visible. All powers that we see and understand and all powers that we don't see and don't understand, simply everything. And that this God has an enormous amount of love for the human race and overcame our rejection and sinful betrayal, which rightly deserves eternal death. He did this by presenting himself, God the Son, as a sacrifice for our sins that we might be adopted into his family and know and enjoy him forever. By this knowing God, we can now love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, you may remember when Jesus was being crucified that we are told for three hours there was darkness over the whole land while the sun's light failed. This is, this is like from noon to three o'clock. That's when the day is its brightest. But it says the sun's light failed and there was darkness over the whole land. This was God's way of showing the world for the first time ever that there was a breach between he and his son. The greatest bond of love ever known in the universe was being torn in two. As the father turned away, blocking Jesus out of his affectionate thoughts, God the father poured his wrath on his son, causing Jesus to cry out and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, this, when Jesus said, my God, my God, that's the only reference in the New Testament where Jesus did not use the word Father, referring to God. Why would he do this? Why was God doing this? Well, the Bible tells us, so that you... So that you and I would never have to cry out in those words. But instead, we can rejoice in the words of Jesus to us. I will never, ever leave you and will forsake you. That is love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, I pray that we know your love. I pray that we see you. I ask that there's something here that we can all take and use this week and the days ahead that we would have a day. Our days would be more and more full of you. And that they would be wonderful and that we could truly have some obedience that is not done out of a burden but is a joy because it means interaction with you. Thank you uh, for your word.
Thank you, you did not leave us. Thank you, you came into the world to save us. Thank you, you have planned wonderful things in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.